the grace that God has given to us in Jesus. So what is grace? A very simple word to translate grace is simply the word generosity. Simply the word generosity. You ever meet someone who is really generous? They're like, man, they'll give you just about anything. Here's the thing about generosity. Generosity is not deserved. If it was deserved, it wouldn't be generosity anymore, right? If someone's like, hey, I've got a Christmas gift for you. Uh, you know, I, I've got this gift card that I'm going to give you. But here's the, here's the catch. You've got to come and mow my lawn uh, throughout the summer to get the gift card. Is that a gift? No, it's not. It's not generosity. That's simply you know, bribery or paying a wage. If your boss gives you what the law demands, gives you minimum wage, he's like, I'm a super generous boss. I'm going to pay minimum wage. And you're like, good for you. That's not generous. Generosity is going above and beyond giving to those who don't necessarily deserve. And God's grace is profoundly that way. We don't deserve his favor. We don't deserve his generosity. We don't deserve his kindness. Generosity does not take merit or deservedness or having it together into account. Generosity is unearned. It is uncoerced. It's freely given. If you have to twist my arm to be like, I want you to be generous. I'm not really being generous. Generosity's got to be free. Here's the point. God is generous. He has this grace and this favor towards us as sinners. So the text, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's Lord, he's Master Jesus, his human name. Christ, by the way, is not like the last name of Jesus. That's not like his first, middle, and last name. Christ is a title. It means Messiah, anointed one, the promised one that all the Old Testament was anticipating. This verse is simply saying this, if you want to see the grace of Jesus, you want to see the generosity of God, and maybe you're here today and you're questioning the generosity of God, you're like, man, 2021 was, man, that was a rough year. Really questioning, is God really generous? Is he really good? Paul's saying, if you want to see the generosity of God, don't look at your bank account. Don't look at what you went through this year. Look at the manger in Bethlehem. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the supreme testimony of the generosity of God. He gave the greatest gift, his son to people who deserved nothing. Now, Paul's point here is this grace, this generosity should motivate what? My generosity. So how do I know that I've received the generosity, the grace of God? It does something to my heart. It changes me from being selfish to generous. But moving back to the text, okay, looking back to verse 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, here, here it is. Here's what the grace looks like. Here's what the generosity looks like. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So what's going on? I've read the Gospels. I missed the part where Jesus was really, really wealthy and then lost, wealthy and lost it all. Well, we're not talking about material wealth here. We're not talking about Jesus had a really big mansion in Jerusalem and then he lost it in the housing collapse of AD 35. Or, no, no, no. We're not talking about that. We're not saying Jesus had a bunch of goods on the Roman stock exchange. No, this is talking about the eternal glory that he had from before the foundation of the world as God. Here's something you have to understand this morning. Jesus did not, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, did not come into existence in the manger in Bethlehem. He has always been. He is God from eternity past. As Christians, we confess the reality of the Trinity, that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's not three gods who make up sort of a triumvirate, no. It's not one God who just kind of has changes forms from time to time. It is one united, singular, indivisible God Yet three persons, you're like, man, the math's not working. We're dealing with mystery. We're dealing with God. That's why we worship, because we don't have him figured out. If you got him figured out, it's not God anymore. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. That's a title for Jesus. Okay, so in the beginning, before time was, he was there. So he didn't get his existence in time. He was there when, when the clock started. He's there from eternity past. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, with God the Father. 
And the word was God. He is God in his essence. God the Son from eternity past possesses all the attributes of divinity. He's not sort of second status. He's not playing second fiddle to the Father where it's like, well, he's got everything except this. No, every attribute God the Father has, God the Son has. We're dealing with something incredibly awesome here. Colossians 1 that Ryan read at the outset of the service tells us that all things were made by him, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, powers, all things were made by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, that he is the visible expression of God. Jesus declares in the gospel, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, that's pretty crazy to say, we think past, present, future, he's like, I am through all of time, eternal. Hopefully your mind is exploding right there. We can't wrap our minds around a God who is present at all points. According to Hebrews 1, he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Nothing less than God. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2 and verse 9. Isaiah 9 6, he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the father of eternity, the prince of peace. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to be crucified, about to be tortured to death. He's about to face oppression and abuse that is unfathomable. And he prays in John 17, in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So when we're talking about the riches of Jesus, we're talking about his eternal status as God, the glory that he had as God, the adulation of the angels the fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. Though he was rich. Okay, the riches we're talking about is riches we can't even wrap our little puny brains around. Just try it, just giving you a, a little tapestry of Scripture, and it's, wow. <laughs> you know, this glory and this majesty and this wealth that he had. The text says, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became That's talking about the incarnation. He came to this earth to be born of the Virgin Mary. That word poor is not just... Poverty and wealth are really relative terms, right? To be poor in the United States is not the same as being poor in Papua New Guinea, right? Being rich in the United States is not the same as being rich. They're very relative terms. In the ancient world, when you talk about poverty, we are talking about absolute dirt poverty. We're talking about barely scraping together an existence to keep food on the table. And this word here is not just, well, it was just kind of, you know, lower middle class. No, we're talking about the bottom rung of the economic ladder. We're talking about abject total poverty. The word means to become poor as a beggar, to get to a place where you are so impoverished, to be, to be so deprived that you are having to beg for your next meal. So he became a beggar, the one who made everything, becoming a beggar in a sense. Now, again, we're not talking about his economic status. We're talking about comparative. He, he, he is God from eternity. And he, he takes on the form of a man. He, be, he takes on a full, genuine human nature. He's talking about his entire life. You're God, and he takes on a human nature, comes into this world. We're talking about his miraculous conception in the virgin's womb. We're talking about his humble birth far from home in that little town of Bethlehem. We're talking about his lowly childhood in Sleepy Nazareth, a town that's so meaningless and never gets mentioned in any of the secular works of Josephus or anyone else. We're talking about his anonymous adolescence in Grubby Galilee. You know we're not told anything about Jesus except a little story when he's 12, and then he shows back up when he's 30. His brief three-year ministry in dusty Palestine, and we're talking about his shocking betrayal in Jerusalem and his gory murder at Golgotha. All of that 
became poor. So quite simply, what, we're, what these words are saying is, God became a man, the word was made flesh, the eternal entered time, the creator entered his creation. John 1.14 was read earlier. Romans 8 and verse 3 affirms the same reality. Galatians 4 and verse 4, that he was made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Colossians 1 and verse 20 declares that he died. 1 Timothy 3.16 says he was manifested in the flesh. Hebrews 2.7, he was made a little lower than the angels. My favorite, Philippians 2. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, you may be thinking, well, that sounds like he stopped being God. Well, he never gave up his deity. He, it wasn't like he set aside his divinity for his humanity. He had a full divine nature, and he brought together with that a full human nature. This is subtraction by addition. You're like, well, that math doesn't make sense either. He adds a human nature and humbled himself. And while on this earth... You think, well, Jesus is just God. He goes around, you know, like just nuking stuff and doing all these miracles. No, he surrendered the independent use of his divine attributes to his Father, and he lived as a man. Now, through the Spirit, the Father allowed those attributes to be manifested in his miracles and at various times. But he did the will of the Father every single step of the way, and that's affirmed over and over again. Now, that's like, you're like, man, that's a lot of theology for a Sunday morning before Christmas. We've got to get this. Who is Jesus? He is God and he is man. He is God who took on flesh. But there's two words in the original, and it's, tra- it's rendered with several words here in, the, in our English. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes, because of you. Why did he do all of this? All right, listen, if you've not heard anything I've said so far, understand, listen to this. He did this for you. This wasn't just a... You know, this wasn't just like, I don't know, let's go down to the earth and see how the earthlings are living kind of thing. This wasn't just a little vacation to be, let's check out Palestine. That'll be awesome. This isn't just a, a fun thing he's doing. He's doing this as a rescue mission. He came on a mission to redeem sinners for our eternal salvation and his Father's eternal glory. Let me put it very simply. You and I are sinners. I said a minute ago, none of us have it together. That's too nice. It's not that we're just, well, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm in the 70th percentile. I'm just needing a little bit of help in my life. The Bible presents us as the term is totally depraved. Every part of our being, we're like, well, I've got a really good heart. I just try and stuff doesn't work out right. No, our hearts are corrupt. They are selfish. They are little idol factories. We, we, we worship ourselves rather than God. We love ourselves rather than him. We take advantage of other people. We misuse them. We lie about them. We lie to them. In our hearts, let's be honest, there's anger that's caught up in our hearts. There's bitterness in our hearts where we would almost look at someone and say, I wish they weren't here, murderers at heart. We look at people who God has not seen fit to give to us as our spouse and say, man, I really want them. We lust after that which God's not given. We are adulterers at heart. We have violated every single one of the Ten Commandments. That's our real condition. That's, that's that, the, the, those are the people Jesus came to save. We're selfish, greedy, lustful, angry, idolatrous, adulterous, and deceptive. And guess what? Jesus was none of those things. That's really good news. If he's going to rescue us, he can't be tainted by the same sin we're tainted by. But it's even worse. Our sin demands wrath. God is holy. God is just. By the way, that's a really good thing. 
right? Have you ever been wronged before? And there's this cry in your heart for justice. Man, that person needs to get what they deserve. We all want God to be just, and we would be incredibly angry if he were unjust. We want God to judge sin, just not my sin. My sin's different somehow. No, God is just absolutely and totally and infinitely and eternally, and all sin has got to be judged. All sin must face God's wrath. So Jesus, what does he do? For your sakes, he became poor. For our sakes, he came to Bethlehem. For our sakes, he went to the cross. For our sakes, he took that punishment that we deserved. He took the wrath that we deserved on himself at the cross. That's incredible. Allowing himself to suffer. Allowing himself to suffer the the punishment we deserved. I remember I got a speeding ticket one time. Actually, it's not only one time, several times I've gotten speeding tickets. But this one particular time, I was... Driving through Thomasville, Alabama. Anybody been to Thomasville, Alabama? Um, there's not much going on in Thomasville. It's kind of, yeah, it's Thomasville. And, uh, you know, the, I think the main revenue source for the town is speeding tickets. I, I don't know. I'm just a guess. And speed limit drops from, like, 55 to, like, 3, you know, when you first drive into town. And I was driving through town there one day. I was on my way to preach at a church. That makes it even better, right? You're the preacher. I got pulled over by the Thomasville Police Department. And I'm like, oh, man, this is horrible. And, you know, they gave me a ticket. Well, one of the church members was driving by. You know, they, oh, look, there's the guy who's preaching for us today, getting a speeding ticket. I get to the church parking lot a little bit late, and uh, he, this guy meets me in the parking lot. I'm like, hey, did you get pulled over? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was me. And, uh, and he says, hey, give me the ticket. I, I, I'll take care of it. I'm like, no, 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 I'll pay my own speeding tickets. Thank you very much. I've got a little bit of pride here, right, a little bit of dignity. I pay my own speeding tickets, right? If I earn them, I pay for them. And he's like, no, 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 listen, I, I, I'm best friends with the mayor. We grew up. I'll, I'll take care of it for you. So this guy took the ticket for me and paid the ticket on my behalf. Now, he didn't speed, right? That guy didn't speed. He didn't get the speeding ticket. Um, he went the speed limit through town. That's why he didn't get pulled over. But he went and took care of the ticket for me. He paid it on my behalf. At the cross, that is what Jesus is doing for us on an infinitely greater scale. The speeding ticket's not just a few hundred dollars paid to the town of Thomasville. No, the price is eternal judgment, eternal wrath from God in hell. And he somehow absorbs all of that on the cross for you and me. Think of the worst things that have ever happened to you. Think of the worst things you have ever done. Think of the worst sins that have ever been committed. Jesus bore the penalty for even those. See, we cannot earn God's favor. If we could earn God's favor, it's completely meaningless for Jesus to die. If we've got the ability to kind of pay our way, earn our way into heaven, meaningless for Jesus to take our place. That's why Christmas matters so much. I love J.I. Packer's statement on this. By the way, his chapter on the incarnation and knowing God is just such a classic. If you've got that book, pull it down off the shelf, read that chapter. But he said this, The crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps down that led the Son of God to the cross of Calvary. And we do not understand it until we see it in this context. Right, in other words, the, what happens in Bethlehem is kind of meaningless by itself. It leads to the cross and Jesus dying for us. We could explain verse 9, the text we're looking at, by something Paul said earlier in the book. For he, that is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. Jesus took our sin on himself, paid the penalty so you and I could be redeemed. So that's 
riches to rags, Jesus leaving the glories of heaven, Jesus leaving the adoration of the angels, Jesus, Jesus surrendering the independent exercise of his divine attributes and living as a real man. He didn't just appear to be a man. He wasn't like a superman going around and doing all. No, he lived as a real man without sin through his entire life for us. Now look back to our text. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Okay, from rich to poor. Now notice the second half. In order that, here's the purpose, here's the point, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So riches to rags allows us to go from rags to riches. This is our second point. The second reality in this text. The first one, his riches to rags, his incarnation, brings us to the second reality. Our rags to riches, our transformation. In what ways are we transformed? What kind of wealth and poverty are we looking at? Well, let me just say this. We are not talking about, again, material wealth. If you lifted just this verse out, out by itself, out of its context, you could be like, God wants you to be rich. Um, and that just doesn't fit the context at all. Look back in verses 1 and 2. This is the, the context this falls in. Okay, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit. You're like, what in the world does that mean? Okay, we want you to know. We want you to know about the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, okay, a really, really bad time, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the, rich, the riches of their liberality, of their generosity. Saying, hey, there's these churches in Macedonia. They're going through a really, really bad time. They were dirt poor, and yet God gave them the ability to be generous. And he says, they've gotten God's grace. Uh, which tells me this. They've gotten God's grace. God's grace does not mean, hey, no more hard times. God's grace rather means joy and generosity even in the middle of bad times. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9 simply cannot mean that God promises you to be healthy and wealthy and everything will be great in your lives. By the way, if you go to a church at times where the pastor is telling you that, you need to leave. He's a false teacher, right? The Bible does not preach a prosperity gospel. The Bible does not say you become a Christian and everything will be great. The Bible says that through much tribulation, we've got to enter the kingdom. The Bible teaches that being a Christian means taking up your cross and dying every day so you can follow Jesus. Being a Christian might mean, in some parts of the world, actually losing your life for Jesus. So what is this transformation? What kind of wealth and poverty are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual wealth and poverty. You see, what's striking about Jesus' poverty is it results in our eternal wealth. Now, the economics here, again, don't make sense. You're like, hey, I'm going to get really rich by divesting myself of all, or get you really rich by being poor. You're like, that doesn't work, right? Like, you need money to, how does that work? Well, by going to the cross, he secures for us all the riches of grace. Jesus became a man. He died for man. He rose again. He ascended back to his prior position of glory and honor. But his poverty was purposeful. It was powerful. It was transforming. His sinless life, his substitutionary death truly saves Anyone who will believe in him. His poverty is the, quite simply, the instrument by which we are handed all the wealth of heaven. Jesus going to earth, going to the cross. God's like, here's all the wealth of heaven. Here's all the treasures of grace. So no, not material wealth, something so much greater, something more lasting. So Jesus dies on the cross. We are declared righteous by God. Here's the transformation from being condemned to being declared righteous. The transformation goes from being unholy to being declared holy, to go from being 
at odds with God, being at enmity with God, to being reconciled to God. God and sinners reconciled. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Here's the reality. If you're not a Christian here today, if you've not been born again, God is your enemy. And you are God's enemy. You are, God's not your friend or your buddy. You must be reconciled to God. His wrath must be turned away. And Jesus, through his cross work, does just that. So here's the riches you get. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you're like, man, 2021's been really bad. Let me just remind you what you have in Christ. According to Ephesians 1, you are chosen, you are redeemed, you are sealed. You are saved. You have been resurrected. You've been given eternal life. You're seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. You have a guaranteed inheritance in heaven. We are made joint heirs with Jesus, Romans 8, verse 17. We have certainty. We have assurance that 10 million years from now, we will be eternally happy in the glory of Jesus. Right? That, that's, I would, that is incredible, eternal, lasting security in the person of Christ that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what suffering we go through, we'll never face the wrath of God. You might face sickness, but you won't face the wrath of God. You might lose your job, but you'll never face the wrath of God. You might lose your dearest friend, but you'll never lose a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's riches. That's, that's wealth that you cannot put a price tag on. That's what we get, that through his poverty we might be made rich. And I say, how do I get that? How do I get that forgiveness, that reconciliation, that relationship with Jesus? We've got to see ourselves as spiritually impoverished. You know, the hardest people to help are people who don't think they need help. I got this, don't help me. You come to try and help, and then you run into each other, and it doesn't go super well. The hardest people to help help are people who don't think they need help. Until we see that we need help, until we see that we are spiritually impoverished, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich, means that we're not rich. In fact, the Bible says we're the opposite. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The book of Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah thunders, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But you're thinking right now, I'm really actually a pretty good person. Like, I mean well, I do nice things, I, you know, I, I bought groceries for someone the other day. All of that in God's sight is as filthy rags. The most disgusting, vile kind of rags that you can imagine. Why? Because it's generated from our own sinful heart. Let me change analogies a little bit. If you've got a spring, a, a, a river, right? And at the spring, there's a bunch of arsenic that is being leached into the water. Everything downstream is going to be poisoned. Because our hearts are sinful, everything that comes out of them, even the things that are on one level good, are unacceptable to God because they come from hearts that are sinful. Our minds, you know, my mind's good. Our minds are, are not submitted to the law of God. Neither can be. The Bible says, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. Our intentions, our will, our heart, all of our actions are tainted and stained with sin. And this is not a stain that you can get out with OxyClean. This is not a stain you can get out with your your own works. Baptism will not wash away the stain. Good works will not undo the sins that have been committed. We are impoverished. We have nothing to offer God. We are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. You can't get a more powerful metaphor for our condition than being spiritually dead. Last time I checked, people who are dead cannot do anything for themselves. They cannot respond to any kind of stimuli. They are completely helpless. Nothing can can help them except a resurrection. You must experience a resurrection. You must experience a new birth that only God can do in your heart. 
that you yourself are powerless and unable to bring about. That's what we're like. So if you're going to receive all this wealth, you've got to see that. That is the real picture of who you are. When you look in the mirror, that's what you have to confess and say, that's what's really going on over here. I don't have it together. Far worse. I'm not just imperfect. I am a rebel against God. I'm spiritually dead. I have no hope in myself. It's only going to be found through Jesus. Yet everybody wants to think that they contribute something. We're like kids that won't let go of the cookie, right, in the cookie jar. We're like kids who won't let go of the toy in our hand to receive something so much better. We want to say, God, I got, I got, I got this to present to you. I've got this good work. I've got this prayer that I pray. I've got this, this goodwill in my heart that I present. And the Bible's like, oh, you bring nothing. Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's it. That's it. We receive as beggars. We don't even have a little cardboard sign. We got, we got nothing except God's grace. If you're going to receive it, see yourself as a beggar. And that means this, putting your complete and total reliance and confidence and everything on the finished work of Jesus. He died on the cross to redeem you. He rose again from the dead. And here's what faith is, is saying, I'm going to rely on that and that alone. I'm committing myself to Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm taking up my cross to follow him because he now owns me. I repent of my sin. I repent of my self-righteousness. I repent of my pride. I turn away from myself, and I turn to Jesus as my Lord and Master and Savior and King. That's the only response of a beggar. Beggars don't bring stuff. They don't contribute stuff to kings. Coming to God and saying, hey, I've got something that I would like to add to my salvation be like, hey, Christmas is Saturday, right? And I come to you, I'm like, okay, you, you need a new F-150, brand new 2022 F-150. It's going to be parked in the driveway. So I go buy this F-150. By the way, I don't have that kind of cash. But let's just say I did go buy this brand new F-150 for you. It's in the driveway. I've got it registered, got the insurance. I've got the key. It has that nice new car smell, beautiful car smell. Here it is. I've got the key, and I come and bring it to you, and you're like opening your wallet, and you're, you're like, oh, hey, here's a couple of dollars, and... Here's the change in my pocket with the chewing gum stuck to it. I want to help out with that. That would be insulting. It would be insulting to try to purchase a gift with inadequate resources. How much more insulting is it to the God of the universe when we say to him, yeah, I trust what Jesus did on the cross, but I've got this little thing over here that I want to contribute. If I'm contributing anything, it's no longer grace. It's no longer a gift. It's no longer salvation. So how do we get this wealth? Simply repent and believe. Trust the finished work of Jesus. And then and only then do we receive the wealth of his grace. It's a story of riches to rags, Jesus coming to earth. Rags to riches from unrighteousness to righteousness. But there's another way that we're transformed. I told you this gem is sort of... It falls into context. Think about sort of a, a, a ring, right? An engagement ring. You've got the, the setting and you've got the, the ring itself and all the little prongs. And every guy goes through this, like, you know, this, 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 this process of self-education before you get engaged to learn about rings and cuts and clarity. And So you, you learn all this stuff. The gem is one thing, but the setting kind of sets it off. Well, the setting in this text helps us understand the relevance of this to our lives. Why does this matter? What does this do for you and me right now in our lives? Well, it transforms us not only from poverty to wealth, it transforms us from selfishness to sacrifice. The setting, if you will, for this gem, the context of this verse is Paul saying to the church of Corinth, guys, be generous. There's 
profound needs in the church at Jerusalem. I want you to be part of meeting this need and being a blessing and supporting them and helping them. And God's grace is a motivation. So let's just back up really quickly and look at these first eight verses. We read verse 1. He's, he's saying, hey, let me give you an example of these other churches who did this well. The churches of Macedonia, that's north of Corinth. Think of the church of Philippi. He's saying, these guys were really generous. Uh, but notice what he says in verse 1. You, I want you to know about the grace of God. There's that word grace again. If you like circling words in your Bible circle, the word grace in verse 1 and again in verse 9. He's saying this grace that we receive through the gospel, it doesn't just change my, you know, my eternal address from hell to heaven. It doesn't just change my status from right, unrighteous to righteous. It changes my heart. It says this grace was bestowed on them. And notice what it did, verse 2, that even in the middle of this horrible time, it abounded to generosity. Liberality is the, the idea of generosity. Here's the point, grace. If you have received God's grace, I want to speak to Christians. Everything I've said up to this point, you've been like, yeah, amen, I've received Jesus as my Savior. Okay, God's grace, here's what it will look like in your life if it's actually done its saving work. It will unleash joyful generosity. This church in Macedonia, they're not like, fine, Paul, we're just going to help out with this offering just to make you happy, get you off our backs. No, there's this joy that spills over into generosity. You see, we're transformed from rags to riches. We're transformed from selfishness to sacrifice. Here's one of the marks of someone who's been touched by God's grace. They have joy in times of suffering. I see so many people walk through times of suffering, and they become bitter. They become angry. They get mad at God for allowing them to go through that suffering. They turn inward in in self-pity run off to counselors, and all the counselors do is say, just wallow in your pity and and look at your pity and stare at your pity. God's grace will say, I'm going to give you joy that will give you the ability to serve and be a blessing to others. That's the only way you can respond that way is through the grace of God. None of us have the human ability to respond to deep affliction like that. So God's grace, he says, came to this church. It gave them this joy, not the self-pity in their suffering, where they were like, we want to give. We want to be a blessing to other people. By the way, there's, there's a road out of depression. Right now, it's not, it's not sim- that simplistic. It's complex. Is take the focus off of me and what I'm going through and be like, I'm going to go out and serve one person today. I'm going to go out and be a blessing to one other person today. That's where joy is found, Jesus and others and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. Like that little song you learn in Sunday school. It's really true, right? Um, They responded that way, and it overflowed. It just bubbled over into generosity. So even in suffering, they had joy. Even in poverty, they had generosity. Generosity is not about how much money you give. You're like, oh, great, pastor's breaking out the the giving sermon. This is not about money. This is about a heart of generosity and sacrifice and others-focusedness, if that's a word. Why did they do this? Because of God's grace. The grace of God, the same grace that where Jesus says, I give up, Wealth that's rightly mine to serve other people calls us to say, I give up wealth that is rightly mine to serve other people. It is our model and our motivation. If he did that for me, should I not be willing to do something so much less for someone else? We're beggars who've received, and once we've received, we want other people to receive. God's grace fundamentally changes our attitude towards material possessions. Kent Hughes kind of puts it on the nose, but I think he's right. If our professed salvation has not loosed our grip on material things that we have become giving people, we are not saved. 
despite our, our, our protestations, our protests. That's a pretty stunning statement. But the, the argument is, is here in the text. God's grace saves us. God's grace, look at what it did for the church of Macedonia. It made them generous. So grace unleashes joyful generosity. Look at verse 3. It unleashes sacrificial generosity. For to their power, that is their ability, I bear record, Jay, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. Here's what he's saying. This church at Macedonia, they were willing to give beyond even their ability. Now, he's not talking about recklessness where they're like, yeah, just give everything away. But here's a church that he's like, I wouldn't have expected them to be generous, and yet they were sacrificial. You see, grace-generated generosity does not simply give what is convenient, does not simply give what is on the excess. It gives what is inconvenient. That's sacrifice. So listen, if I'm, if I'm a billionaire and I start giving out $100 bills, that's just my pocket change. There's not really any sacrifice there, right? He's saying they gave what they did not, couldn't really spare to be a blessing to others. You see, it's one thing to give of your time when you're like, yeah, you know, I'm retired. I got nothing going on. I can give a little bit of time here or there. That's not much sacrifice. It's another thing to give of your time when you're really busy. If gathering with God's people is inconvenient, if discipling someone else cuts into your hobbies, would you still do it? And I'm sad to say, given the last year and a half, I've learned that a lot of Christians, if coming to church becomes mildly inconvenient, won't do it anymore. If reading my Bible becomes mildly inconvenient, won't do it anymore. If serving someone else becomes mildly inconvenient, grace calls us to sacrificial generosity, sacrificial giving. If helping someone in need meant giving up your planned vacation, would you still do it? If helping someone else grow spiritually meant opening up your home, would you still do it? This is what I'm talking about real gritty Christian living here, real sacrifice, not just I come to church and check the box. I've put in 10% in the offering plate. I've done my duty. I'm talking about God owns everything. He owns my time. He owns my budget. He owns my schedule. He owns my all, and I'm going to live like that's true. Now, verse 4 tells us another, another revelation of this transformation. The church of Macedonia says they were praying, they were begging with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. That's what he's saying. This church was eager. Paul was not going to the church of Macedonia being like, hey, guys, could you help out with this? They were like, hey, Paul, we really want to be part of this project. Here's a need. We get to meet it. We're excited about this. They begged Paul to be involved in this project. He wasn't coercing them. He wasn't guilting them. He wasn't going around telling them, hey, if you sow a seed, you'll get rich. No, he wasn't doing any of that. Rather, grace had so transformed their hearts that they counted it a privilege to meet other people's needs. By the way, this is the model of giving under the new covenant. We don't live under the old covenant. So under the new covenant, the, the model here is just free will giving. Under the old covenant, there was basically a tax called the tithe. We pay taxes today. The new, the new covenant is something so much greater, self-sacrifice, willing giving. Paul's not manipulating, intimidating, cajoling, or forcing these people to give. He's not preying on their desperation. They're giving willingly. I saw a thing on Facebook the other day that says, if you're a Christian, nobody should have to beg you to go to church. You're a worshiper. Worshippers worship. If you're a Christian, someone shouldn't be like, hey, you should really come back Sunday nights. If you love God's people and God's word, gathering to hear God's word and be around God's people is like, yeah, that's fun. That's like a party, right? Uh, if you're a Christian, nobody should have to beg you to read the Bible. If you're a Christian, nobody should have to beg you to tell other people about Jesus. We are all natural evangelists for that which we love the most, 
right? Like if you love Alabama football, you don't have, no one has to beg you to be like, please watch the game. Please tell people about the game. If you love Jesus, nobody should have to beg you to go and tell other people about Jesus. This is willing, eager generosity. And verse 5, this is key. And this they did not as we hoped. He's like, they went beyond what we expected. But first they gave their own selves to the Lord. God is not after your money. God is after you. Right? This is, this is not really about finances. This text is about God's grace has come and now you belong to Jesus. Right? God is after you. He wants your heart. What's most astounding about generosity here that we're talking about, this grace-generated generosity, is it unleashes a whole life generosity. This is about recognizing divine ownership of everything. It's not just like, I did church today, and I did this little thing, I placated my conscience. This is being so transformed by grace that you willingly give yourself to God. Now listen, if you've already given everything to God, it's not that hard to give part of the everything you already gave, right? Like, if it's all his, like, hey, God, the, the entire car is yours. And he's like, hey, can I have the change in the cup holder? Well, I already said the whole car is yours, so it's not hard to give what you already gave. He said you surrender yourself totally to God. God is not demanding something from you. He is demanding you. And if God's grace has laid claim to your life, then all that you have is God. So here, Christian, let me, let me make this practical. Jesus has come, riches to rags. He's transformed us, rags to riches. He's transformed our hearts to be generous, giving people. What if you, number one, were generous with your time? Time's the most valuable commodity that we have. What if you said, I'm going to be generous with my time to do spiritual good to other people? Say, I'm going to meet with another believer this coming year. We're going to get together once a week. We're going to read the Bible. We're just going to read the Bible together and pray together, and I'm going to do them some spiritual good. I'm going to devote my time and commit my time to be faithfully gathering with God's people whenever I possibly can to do spiritual good to them. I said, I'm going to take my time and I'm going to invest it in helping someone else find and follow Jesus. The reason most of us don't do it is we're busy. All right? I've heard this so much in the last year. Man, we're just, I'm just, just smashed with busy and I, I just can't make it out to church or I can't get involved with, with the, these people or this ministry. And I understand there's priorities, there's things we've got to do. God's not calling us to go be monks and all quit our jobs and, and, you know, quit school. I'm not suggesting that at all. But think about the things in our schedules that are extras, right? The times that we spend on recreation and watching TV. If I were to maybe, if I were to look at your phone and look at your time usage on your phone, I could probably say, man, those eight hours you're spending on Instagram or, you know, YouTube, like maybe just a couple of those hours could be freed up to, to do someone some spiritual good. What about investing, secondly, not just your time, but your energies and your affection? Getting involved with other people means setting yourself up for heartbreak. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be hurt. People are going to walk out on you. You're going to witness to someone, and they're going to be like, get mad and be like, you've offended me. Um, But this is the way of the cross. The way of the cross is to walk the way of Jesus. This is so much more than just saying, I write a check and throw some money at something. That's kind of an American solution to stuff is, hey, there's a problem over here. Well, let's just give some money and we're done with that. That's kind of like a, you know, that's not what God did. He didn't drop down a a bale of money when there was sin in the world. He himself entered into it. This is a call for us in person to get involved in one another's lives. 
So here's what I'm saying. Grace transforms us this, from rags to riches, transforms us to where we are people who are marked by joyful generosity, sacrificial generosity, eager generosity, personal generosity of our whole souls because of the grace of Christ. So here's my question to you as we conclude. Have you been transformed by the grace of God in that kind of way? What I'm not asking you this morning is have you prayed the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is such a cheap substitute for a genuine work of grace in your heart. I mean, has your life collided with the soul-transforming, eternity-transforming grace of God? Have your priorities been reoriented and and just completely flipped on their head because of what Jesus has done for you? Has God's grace come into your life and transformed you from being a condemned sinner before his throne to an adopted son? Christianity is, in the final estimation, a rags-to-riches story for us, but only because of the riches-to-rags story of Jesus. Here's another question. Are you thankful? Hopefully one of the reasons we're here today is we are genuinely overflowing with thankfulness and worship and praise to Jesus for what he has done for us. I think the only response is, verse 5, is to say, take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to, to thee. Take everything. Father, pray that you would work in our hearts. May we be obedient to your truth and to your word.